0: Welcome back to media's performance podcast this is the first episode of 2021 we're in the future this episode was recorded though in november 2020 at the uh hopefully was the end of the covid palava and uh we're releasing this in 2021 hopefully we're all still alive and 2021 isn't worse than 2020. Uh, The reason I held back this episode was because we really wanted to uh, focus on strength and conditioning in this talk. Um, And I knew that many people would be looking at potentially, you know, getting fit, starting new goals, getting out there, hitting the gym, hitting the road, jumping in the ocean, the pool, whatever it might be, after the Christmas and New Year's celebrations, whether they'd be crazy or pretty quiet, depending on where you are and what restrictions you have. That being said, though, I think it's always a time of year that people do look to make some changes. So it's very fortunate to have Arthur Lynch on today, who's recently completed his PhD, and we talk all things strength and conditioning. Arthur gives a bit of his background as well around his PhD, sort of at the end of the podcast, actually, instead of at the start, where we normally provide credibility. But please hang on to the end, and Arthur will run through some of his research. Uh, The first part of the podcast is very much focused on the kind of trade-offs with strength and conditioning, what works... Uh, the nuance and um, things that we must take into account depending on age injuries and so on lots of things in here for everybody um, so very much a kind of a personal podcast uh, for you at the start of the year if you're looking to make some changes and incorporate some strength and conditioning in, or you're just looking to uh, broaden your knowledge base in this area Arthur's a very nice guy very engaging um, lots of good information here so I hope you enjoyed the episode as always we're at mediasconsulting.com.au uh, you can find us there or on instagram at sleep for perform or at melius perform and on twitter now as well at melius perform and uh, we're on facebook as well linkedin the whole lot so you just search melius and you should be able to find us anyway on with the episode Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome back to Media's Performance Podcast. Today, I am joined by the Prince of Limerick. We had the King of Limerick on before, Kieran O'Regan. So, Arthur, by definition, being the second after Kieran, I'm going to call you the Prince. How's that? Would that be a
1: good nickname? That's no, a that's an honor. Thank you. Um, an honor is. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Arthur is uh, Arthur is joining us uh, from uh, down the river from my old hometown in Ireland uh, a town called Athlone which you no know, listener will probably know where that is everybody always goes to me oh whereabouts in Ireland are you from I go Athlone, they go where's that, I go right in the middle and they go outside Dublin no, where Dublin is we're always halfway between, on the river Shannon no I don't know it, I go I know you wouldn't know, but anyway the... <laughs> The River Shannon flows down to the sea, and at the end of that great river, at the estuary, is a city called Limerick. That used to be called. Do you remember what it used to be called, Arthur? You're a bit younger than me, so you maybe don't remember what it used to be called.
1: No, enlighten me. Stab City.
0: Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh I still called that. I'm afraid <laughs> it's still called
0: All right, we're moving swiftly along. <laughs> <laughs> Go and listen to my episode, everybody, with Karen O'Regan if you want to f- hear the story on the background of Stab City and some of uh, Karen's tales. Um, so, Arthur, thanks for coming along this morning. Um, well, morning in Ireland, here uh, in the afternoon in Australia. So, obviously, we have some Irish guests on the podcast, and it's by pure chance and by pure crossover in our rep- uh, um in our respective fields. We weren't sort of mates or knew each other in Ireland so it's kind of weird I end up speaking to lots of Irish people living here however. Um, Arthur can you give the listeners a quick intro of who you are, where you're from and and what your kind of uh, high-level background is before we delve into it?
1: Yeah sure no problem at all. Uh, so I suppose where to start. Uh, I'm, I suppose I would consider myself a bit of a a sports science generalist, if you like. Um, so my own background is in sport and exercise sciences. Um, Education-wise, um, I did my, my BSc in sport and exercise sciences at the University of Limerick. Um, then a few years later, I came back and went into uh, my, my PhD, which I've just recently completed, um we'll, we'll say that that was in sports science as well, because there's there's a bit of a story around how that okay. progressed from, uh, originally it was meant to be based on exercise physiology. And by the end of it, it was more biomechanics, if anything. Um, then personally, uh, my own interests have always centered around lifting weights. The specific area has sort of jumped around a little bit over the years. So originally it was, um, I actually got into lifting weights, Uh, for playing rugby initially and then throughout my my leave and search year or uh, wherever you are in the world maybe last year of high school if you like um, uh, even though I I was up to that point rugby was everything over the course that final year uh, I started to started to fall out of love with rugby and started to started to fall in love with lifting weights more and more and more and just got interested in the adaptations to lifting weights and then got interested in nutrition and all these other different things. So that's actually what led me down the route of, of sports science. But um, that, a couple of years down the line, moved into bodybuilding, um, did a couple of shows, uh, quickly burnt out and got fed up with that. <laughs> um, then I just went back to being a guy who just lifted weights like I was before. Um, and then I ventured into powerlifting um got really into that um i'm still involved in powerlifting though i haven't competed in quite a while although i'll go easy on myself because with the pandemic hitting all the competitions were cancelled anyway um though that said i hadn't any uh aspirations of competing this year um and so now i'm somewhere between a, a, a full-time powerlifter and a guy who just lifts weights yeah just lifts weights again <laughs> Sort
0: um that's really interesting because lots of people do get into lifting weights playing rugby, you know, I I grew up playing rugby, which I've spoken about before and, you know, I sort of got into lifting weights as well, but unfortunately, I got, as I got older, I got skinnier and started shrinking. Um, But, when we talk about bodybuilding, lifting weights and powerlifting, how would you describe and how would you distinguish the three of those different terms? Because they're kind of used interchangeably a lot of times, but they are quite different.
1: They are, yeah, yeah. And um, I was actually asked, something similar to this on, a, on another podcast a few months back about like, you'll you see hear like resistance training versus strength training versus lifting weights. And are they different? And uh, short answer, no. And then more nuanced answers, they're slightly different. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but basically, yeah. So I mean like lifting weights is basically what it says on the tin just, just lifting weights for the sake of it. And that might be for general performance. um, uh, with general performance goals in mind, general health goals in mind, um, then bodybuilding is lifting weights um, as a means to an end of uh, building your body um, and also, you know, through a combination of diet and other exercise modalities, namely cardiovascular exercise, uh, you look to reduce your body fat levels Whilst maintaining your muscle mass through diet and your weight training, yeah, um, to ultimately lead to you know the the uh, well Arnold Schwarzenegger would describe it as muscularity, this sort of uh, halfway house between lots of muscle and very low levels of body fat. Yeah. Um, then powerlifting, powerlifting is the sport whereby, of course, obviously you're going to be lifting weights as well, um, but in contrast with body will, bodybuilding the um the performance isn't based on your physique it's based on how much weight you can lift in the three events the squat the bench press and the deadlift um so when i say i go through periods where i just turn back into being a generalist basically what i mean by that is i I spend less time focusing specifically on the squat bench and deadlift and i might focus on other lifts or i might change the routine so that uh the repetitions are a bit higher and there's more, there's just generally more variation in the training. You know? Yeah. So,
0: so powerlifting isn't per se about any sort of, you know, body sculpting, body image, low body fat. It's not aesthetically, Um, uh, it's not an aesthetic sport, so to speak. It's more about, you know, how much heavy shit can you lift really regardless of what you look like.
1: Yeah, essentially. Now you can get a lot of that as a byproduct, but it's not yeah. the main outcome. So, I mean, you'll see not some minimum, yeah. particularly nowadays as the sport has, has, particularly grown in the last sort of six or seven years um, you'll see some absolute freaks that are really really strong and have incredible physiques as well um, but uh, but yeah as, as you say it's not it's not judged based on who's the most muscular or leanest athlete um, yeah
0: so after what do you find What's the kind of um, the reward for you by lifting weights? And what I'm thinking about is a lot of people kind of, you know, throw a lot of muck or dirt at something like CrossFit and go, oh, they, these people are just like really good at exercising. And then other people might say, well, look, I don't really like just lifting weights because, you know, it's kind of boring. It's repetitious and same old thing. And I'm already doing it for a specific goal. So what what's the kind of what's the whiff and what's in it for you? What's what's the meaning for you by how do you kind of stay focused by lifting weights and powerlifting? Yeah.
1: Well, just firstly on that first point about about CrossFit, because that's something that frustrates me too. That people will, will kind of scoff at CrossFit because, like, and this is the thing you see amongst the different lifting cultures. So whether it's Olympic lifting, you know, scoffing at uh, um, powerlifters or bodybuilders taking issue with with powerlifters or. Um, powerlifters taking issues with, with bodybuilders for, for various different reasons you know if you dig deep enough you'll find a plethora of different issues with all the different muscle yeah. sports if you like you know um so yeah it just it just kind of frustrates me i mean i just look at crossfit as a sport now i suppose a lot of the critique would be around some of the crazy stuff they do but i mean there's plenty of that if you go looking for it there's plenty of that in powerlifting there's plenty of that in weightlifting and there's Definitely plenty of that in, in bodybuilding as well. And there's yeah. lots of, lots of issues, you know, people, you know, that are calling themselves coaches that probably shouldn't be, uh, you know, that there's uh, big issues with, with performance enhancing drugs and uh, all this kind of stuff that maybe we might get into later on. But to not sidestep your question completely, um, what it does for me Honestly, and this is a very underwhelming answer. I just enjoy it. Yeah, you know, it's just an activity that I enjoy. Now, a lot of that is because of the adaptations that I derive from it. So, you know, uh, increased strength, muscle hypertrophy, um generally improved body composition. Um, but but the actual just going to the gym, lifting weights, uh, in and of itself, it's just an activity that I enjoy doing. You know.
0: Yeah, you just like it. Yeah. 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 And I think uh, in some ways, like one of the things is, and I've dabbled like in CrossFit, weightlifting, kettlebells, all different sort of modalities Mm -hmm. um, to complement, you know, running, swimming, and jiu-jitsu. But I think one of the things I like about when I did lift, sort of, you know, do the classic kind of strength training that, you know, Mark Ripperton, those guys advocate is that it's quantitative. You know, you can apply a number to it. You're not competing with anybody else. You're competing with you in the bar. And a bit like what Henry uh, Rowland says, you know, about the iron doesn't lie type of thing, you know, and it's kind of, but you can see the progression there as well. Um, A lot of people, you know, talk about different types of strength training and and different types of um, strength and conditioning training. And I think strength and conditioning training really, a lot of people don't talk about the conditioning, just talk about the strength training. And then people a bit like diets as well, maybe not as bad as diets, but a lot of people get kind of evangelical about, what works and what doesn't work and people go right well if you're a jiu-jitsu guy the best thing you can do is do powerlifting if you're um a long distance runner crossfit's the best thing for you and you know and i've had this conversation with some people and, and some people like if you're i remember like i was doing long distance running and i was running i don't know maybe 80 to 100 k's a week lots of elevation change running with a backpack One guy said to me, you should be doing CrossFit five times a week on top of that. I was like, there's no fucking way I'm doing five sessions of CrossFit. At the max, I'm doing two strength and conditioning sessions, you know, whether it's CrossFit or whatever it is, but at the max, I'm doing that. But people have have this idea that you have to do five strength training sessions a week, five of your chosen sport. And then, you know, it's a bit like when people listen to Rogan, you know, and they go, you do like this many hot yoga sessions, this many jujitsu, this many kickboxing. It's like, how how do you have a full-time job? Like, how do you work? How do you, because you're spending like 30 hours doing this, you know, and it's just, it just becomes, just becomes crazy. So how, and I know this is a hard question to answer, but what guidance would you give people on basically figuring out what strength and condition training would work for their sport, whether it be endurance, whether it be martial arts, whether it be, you know, you know, a team based activity like rugby or soccer, what sort of questions do you think people should ask themselves before, to choose a, this particular type of strength and conditioning and I know it's a hard question
1: yeah it is um, yeah. in all in all those different examples you've given the the context around it could be completely different so I mean you could have your, your recreational runner who does all his own training plans and all that kind of thing versus you know a rugby player who's part of a team and maybe they have an assigned strength and conditioning coach so he follows what, what they do and um, But generally, let's say you're in the farmer camp, let's say you're doing your own training plans uh, for running or martial arts or whatever it is. I mean, presumably, if you're going from absolutely nothing, the biggest benefits will come from going from nothing to something. And that's something, as you say, like if you go from zero to five days a week kind of thing, that's more than likely not going to end well, no matter what it is. (laughs) So so let's start, like this concept of the minimum effective dose, let's try and attain that. So for someone who's been doing nothing at all, that could be once a week. Um, If they could get in twice a week, I'd say that's probably better. Um, But at that point, I, I wouldn't be stretching beyond that. Because like you said as well, you have to fit it in on top of all your other training. And at some point, you can't just keep adding and adding that like your body's going to bite back at you eventually if you keep doing that. Just like if you were to add extra running, eventually you'll start running into, pun unintended there, um, (laughs) uh, issues with, you know, overuse injuries and those kind of things. and just leaving yourself more susceptible because it's 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 adding uh, additional training volume um, that's that may exceed your capacity to recover, and that's usually what culminates in injury um, or or underperformance. You know, uh, so uh, yes, yeah, for someone who's been doing absolutely nothing, start with one to two days per week. Um, look for a someone who knows what they're doing as well look for a reputable coach uh you know like if you go at it by yourself the likelihood is you're going to make a lot of mistakes and that's okay because you can learn from that but you can circumvent that or a lot of that if you if you hire a coach um even if it's just to get you started and if it's just to show you how to to perform um some basic exercises with correct technique and teach you about you know progressive overload and appropriate volumes and 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 how to how to progress the training over time. Teach you about things like deloads and um, manipulating the, the the training stimulus in such a way that's uh, facilitative of performance rather than just adding extra fatigue onto what you're already doing. Um, now I'm speaking very kind of. Broadly, an overview level there because uh, you know, without knowing the specifics of the individual, it's difficult to give you know a specific answer.
0: No, I think, yeah, no, and, and I said that as well, it's a difficult question. I do like to ask that question sometimes just to see how people approach it because I find it really interesting. Like I said, people get evangelical about different types of training modalities. I remember a number of years ago, myself and uh, Reed Real, who's been on Danny Lennon's podcast, Nutrition, who you may know from. He works at the UFC now and he was on this podcast a few episodes ago. Um myself read another guy called Israel Halpern, who you may mm. you may know. He's been on Danny's podcast as well. Um, want to get Israel on actually because Israel's got a kind of a very unique mindset as well around oh, yeah. coaching fighters and so on. He's very, you know, he kind of crosses that boundary with psychology and sports and a bit of philosophy as well. Um, but I remember somebody asked Israel this question at AIS in a in a presentation you know, what's the best training program for someone doing MMA? and Israel went like what kind of fighter do they want to be no one was actually thinking about the goal in mind of like the athlete it was like driving it the opposite way around about what the training is not about what's the sport? Okay, they want to be a fighter. What kind of fighter do they want to be? Do they want to be like a, a grappler who drags people to the mat like a Khabib? Do they want to be a standing bang guy like Nate Diaz and, you know, wear people out more of an endurance type fighter? Or do they want to be like a Paulo Costa who's like muscled up and just comes in? Like, so it's really interesting again and it, it kind of aligns with what you're saying, Arthur, is about it depends on the person even within the sport and what type of player or what type of athlete they want to be. What I found really interesting that Israel said was it depends on what they like doing. He goes, because I might push powerlifting over and over again to somebody as a heavyweight fighter saying that they need to increase strength. But they may absolutely detest doing that. And they might love lifting kettlebells. And they might love doing kettlebells, you know, pushing a sled, climbing a rope, more kind of hit training. So, you know, if they're not going to do that or do it badly, I'm going to pick something that they like doing.
1: Right, exactly. And I think that that kind of hits the nail on the head of sort of just just don't be dogmatic with things. Now, for example, let's just say, for instance, if someone wanted to learn Olympic lifting and they thought that was going to be the thing that was going to unlock their athletic potential, um, if they came to me, I would be probably referring them because that's not what I specialise in. I couldn't really teach you how to do a snatch. I could, I could bluff my way through it, but I'd be doing you, but I'd be doing you a disservice. So I, I outsource things. Um, but, uh, but just yeah, just don't be dogmatic about it. Uh, so, for instance, like. I could write you the most perfect training program that on paper would improve your performance. But if you're only going to, you know, maybe you're going to perform as sort of half arsed. You're not that pushed about it. You're skipping sessions, this kind of thing. Um, compared to like, if I wrote a suboptimal training program on paper, but you really enjoy it. You train really hard when you do it and, um, you adhere to it really well. That's, more than likely going to produce a much better result. You yeah. Know?
0: So with that, with that, then Arthur, like when we talk about strength, and conditioning, training, should we, you know, look at, you know, having predominantly more, and this is kind of leading off the back of this, more kind of high intensity interval training sessions, or should we just lift weight for strength and for for pure strength, or should we mix and match those throughout the week?
1: It probably depends on. It depends on what adaptation you're really you're looking for. So, like those examples you gave, you know, like hit training or circuit style training versus pure strength uh, training. Where and we, I classify, let's let's um, operationally define strength as you know we're we're working on maximal strength, so we're talking low repetitions, high load, so high high percentage of your one RM longer rest periods, that kind of thing. Um, It it depends on which adaptation you've determined is going to give you the uh, greatest benefit for your performance. And the answer to that may be dependent on where you are in your training career. So for example, um, if, if you're... Uh, you know, a novice athlete and you don't have a lot of weight training experience, you're probably better off focusing more of your time on maximal strength. And then once that's of a sufficient level, once you are in inverted commas strong enough, then you might move towards more explosive strength um, adaptations because you're already strong enough that now maximal strength isn't going to limit you. You know, um, if you're in a strength sport, you can't be too strong but in most other sports you get to a point where you're strong enough and by just pursuing maximal strength further at that point you're kind of you're chasing sort of a point of diminishing returns you know um so at that point you might move towards more explosive strength work or for example if you uh, identified that your conditioning was limiting you then you might you might incorporate more circuit style training sessions um or or hit training, as 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 you pointed out as well. So it, it really just depends on what adaptation you're looking for. Again, same thing with like hypertrophy. Maybe you need a bigger engine, so you spend a little bit of time focusing on pure hypertrophy, and you accompany that with a, a, a calorie surplus and sufficient protein. So so the nutrition has to come into it as well.
0: Yeah, and then I suppose, Arthur, on top of that, we have the added sort of uh, variable of um, age ranges. So like you know when i when i was younger like for example you spoke about when you were playing rugby and lifting weights i was in a similar kind of boat, you know when i was young i think a lot of young men want to be big and strong and you know whatever then you kind of have some injuries and things go on and then you hit your 40s and now i'm just more about kind of um you know movement i've kind of gone away from the heavy weights i've gone more towards still lifting some weights like once a week but um, doing more kind of endurance activities because I like them, like long distance swimming, long distance running, still doing martial arts. But my sort of hit sessions will say I do more hit style workouts because I enjoy them. I get a bit of all-around condition. I mix in body weight, kettlebells, skipping some bar work, mix them all in together because I know number one, like what you're saying, I'll do it. And number two, I enjoy it. And I get it done really quickly as well. And and it gets me kind of, it forces me to move in different ways than I wouldn't normally. And um obviously, like I spoke about on this podcast before, I've had some spinal injuries and just had spinal surgery this year. So, you know, loading up my my upper back and neck with, you know, 120 kilos of weight is probably not the best thing I could do. So yeah. there's all those added kind of things of, you know, as you get older, you want to be more focused on mobility and, and movement and all these injuries. So I think that's another variation that people should consider because, you know, a lot of people are listening to this now in the new year. They've come out of, uh, Christmas on the back of COVID as well, and people are probably going, 2021, I'm going to blast this. You know, I'm going to, you know, train like a demon. I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to try and change a hundred things at once. So I think it's, it's. I think whilst we're not giving people, you know, the answers, we're giving them some general questions and frameworks that they need to ask and ascertain where they need to go and where they need to be.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and, and in in those examples, like the, you, you really are setting yourself up for failure with just these like lofty aspirations of oh, I'm going to take up 101 different things and go hell for leather on all of them. Like pick pick one, and you know, a, a fairly modest objective. Um, it's not particularly exciting, but if you could a- adhere to it and make it stick, you're going to be far better off. And then you maybe you can build on that in time. So, for example, I, I uh, mentioned about maybe you start with two training sessions a week. <coughs> Excuse me. Once that becomes habitual for you, maybe you can bump that up to three, possibly even four. But, you know, the, the, the main thing is to get the uh, get the initial sort of behavior change and then just make that a habit for you. And then you can build on that in time. Um, one thing you noted as well about, like, uh, older versus younger individuals. There's a few things to... Oh, oh,
0: oh, sorry, I'll, I'll use a more technical term for Irish people. Old lads versus young lads.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> there's, uh, there's scientific, scientific terminology. Um, but uh, there's a few things to, to kind of, to note there. Is that like, well, firstly, everyone has the ability to adapt. You know, you see this even with uh, research in uh, Older adults, whereby, you know, they might be 60, 70, 80 plus, And they can still adapt to weight training, you know. But it just means that, you know, their start point might be that bit lower. And you just need to be a bit more careful with how you progress things. Because the rate at which they can adapt isn't the same as someone who's, you know, 19, 20. Um, the other thing as well is, so in in your example... Specifically, you know, you you have a lot more considerations there. So previous injury history being one. So we wouldn't be loading you up for a 1RM back squat the first day you come in. We might be starting you off with like a dumbbell goblet squat or some split squats. um, Exactly what I do now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And that's perfectly perfectly reasonable, you know. Um, You might progress towards some light back squats in time, but it needs to be gradual and done at a rate that your your body can uh, adjust to and, and adapt to you know um so it, the, like the, the principles are going to be the same for the younger and the older individual it's just that the rate at which you can do things and how aggressive you can be with the progression is going to differ um and that can be you know you can have a, a young person who's messed up with injuries as well yeah, yeah, yeah. same approach you know um so so yeah, I
0: think it's, I think it's really interesting Arthur to speak about the adaptation with the older people just to try an old war story. So back about 18 19 years ago, um, when I left the military, I was working as a, a personal trainer, a physical trainer, whatever you want to call it in a recreational sports center in Ireland in my hometown, you know, one of those classic kind of government bodies that has like a pool, a gym and coffee shop and whatever. So we um started up a uh, a seniors gym we call that for over 55s <laughs> which really was actually quite young now when i think about it, you know as i get older i go actually it was quite young and um, but we call it seniors gym it was just basically anybody for over the age of 55 and we sort of had a session for them in the gym and we just kept it to machine weights we brought them around and give them uh, sorry machine weights and cardio machines and we brought around give them a kind of an induction of a, of a circuit we would do with these these things every week and we you know would put a time run that would go around John you know, change change whatever we talked to them in between it was absolutely amazing to see we had people from the age of 55 right through to the mid 80s and it was absolutely amazing to see one their increase in how they could lift on machine wets two their posture and their mobility change over like, you know, 10 or 12 weeks, how they came into the gym and how they left. Three, the relationships start forming between people. So from a mental health perspective and the kind of flirting that went on as well with men and women. And then like, finally, the confidence that people had. Like this guy came in, you know, I used to call him surfer dude because he used to come in like wearing this Hawaiian shirt with like short sleeves and he used to walk on the treadmill. But the the incline was getting higher and higher and higher every week, you know, and he was looking around and some of the, some of the women and these guys were in their like late seventies. Some of the women were like eyeing him off. And I thought, this is unbelievable. They're, they're kind of behaving, you know, and I was in like 23, 24 at the time. And it was kind of, for me, it was like, I can't believe these people behave like that. But it was absolutely amazing to see that true lifting some weights, you know, low to moderate for their, for their age and size to see all these additional benefits that came over, you know, and, you just remind me that story about the benefit of older people, you know, lifting weights because we weren't running a controlled study, but we all commented on that. My, and actually, that's where I met my wife. She was working there as, as an Walk Australian. Away. Yeah, that's where we met. And so, you know, she's often said that to me if we're sitting here watching TV here in Australia. And like, I remember we used to that senior's gym and I go, yeah, surfer, dude. She started laughing, and you know, and, I, and we kind of laugh about it in a smile about it in a kind of a, a very nice way about the whole change in it. So I think it's, I think there's other benefits too through those type of activities that are that are really really good. Like you said, you just like going to the gym, so yeah. it can be good as well in that respect.
1: Yeah, and one point that you bring up there as well is about machine weights because it's, it's, you know many people are inclined to to want to knock machine based resistance, and some of the reasons are you know kind of fair enough. Like for example, if you if you wanted a kit out a gym, it's going to be an awful lot more expensive to be, to kit, it, to kit out a gym with a, uh, a machine for every main movement, if you like, versus just bars, racks, and dumbbells, um, if that makes sense. Uh, ho- however, like, machines in the right context are very effective. There's one study that uh, your man Brad Schoenfeld loves to refer to as a, you know, sort of a, those that would knock machine weights for not being functional. Um, and this study I think is from the early nineties where they had very elderly subjects. I think some of them were in their nineties and the protocol was leg extension machine resistance. Uh, and at the very end of it, some of the subjects were able to throw their canes away. That's how really? it was. Yeah. yeah, it, it, it's yeah, yeah. So like is anyone who says that machines aren't functional or, you know, that are, useless and just point them in the direction of, of that study you know it's 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 wild it's it's all about context Ian, you know
0: yeah yeah for sure and, I, and this is this is a great conversation because we're coming up with more questions and more variations and more issues that need to be kind of considered when people are you know approaching them one more thing i do want to ask you on this topic archer because i do want to come back to um uh, um I don't want to come back to your PhD. We should have started with your PhD, but we'll we'll end. We'll get your credibility at the end of the podcast. How about that? We'll do it the opposite way around. We just went down the rabbit hole. One thing I do want to ask you about: What about bodyweight exercises? You see, you know, a lot of people starting to do bodyweight exercises during the COVID lockdowns, reduced space. Um, I've I've always been a proponent of them traveling. Um, and one of the greatest kind of travel workouts that I used to do when I was traveling for business and be in a hotel room and i just couldn't be kind of asked going to the gym or you know getting clothes dirty if i was on a layover i would strip down to my underpants and um, i know that's a horrible sight so uh please please imagine that tonight everybody and i would do a workout in in the hotel room that would just require basically your own body which was set a clock for seven minutes do as many air squats you could in seven minutes rest for three minutes and then do as many burpees as you could for seven minutes that's 14 minutes of work. i tell you one thing, Arthur. That workout used to fuck me up. Absolutely destroy me. And I didn't need it. No way. It's not nothing. And I tell you, I've done it before in clothes. And halfway through, you take off your clothes because you get that hot. It's absolutely exhausting. So when people say they need lots of equipment, they don't, can't afford a gym membership, I say, have you got 14 minutes a day? Yeah. i to do this workout. I remember one lady who <laughs> I ran into, and I told her that about doing that workout. Oh, that's easy. I'll do that two days later what the fuck she said that i couldn't do that i couldn't even do seven minutes of air squats i went yeah kill you i said imagine doing that like you know like twice three times a week for a month how good you get no nah, nearly killed me there's no way that's 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 crazy she said 14 minutes you know so what what's your thoughts on bodyweight exercises and how could we potentially incorporate them in not doing a crazy um stupid workout like i was doing there but
1: what what's your thoughts on that Right, yeah, because depending on what way you go about it, you, you can you can properly mess yourself up with that kind of stuff. But uh, Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. i burn up my but, chest like I was smoking cigarettes at the end of it.
1: Well, <laughs> I suppose if we think of it this way, um, let's come back to our adaptations that we were talking about earlier on that we can derive from uh, actual weight training. So let's think of like increased strength, uh, increased hypertrophy, power, those kind of things. Where where would where would body weight training um lie you know on a of effectiveness for those kind of adaptations? For max strength, you'd probably say not great. For hypertrophy, it can be very good, particularly in the upper body. Um I mean if you think of like push-ups, pull-ups, uh, inverted rows, if you can do them, handstand push-ups, um and then things like you know you, you know you're you're in your hotel room there you, you can do some lying skull crushers to work your triceps a little bit harder and things like that um, you you can get inventive with the lower body it's a little bit trickier because you can do your your air squats and they're very good for maybe a conditioning session or you know just just doing in a verticamas a workout you know just to get some general exercise in um, not to say that they're not difficult or anything but. For hypertrophy and strength outcomes they probably wouldn't the load probably wouldn't be uh, high enough. Um, for power it's easy you just do the same movements and try and do them faster uh, just working on the, the speed so you know explosive push-ups explosive lunges or squats or things like that um, but yeah but with with strength and, and hypertrophy, for the lower body, you ha- you have things like air squats. Depending on your level, they might be reasonably challenging for you. Uh, body weight lunges or split squats that gets a little bit more difficult then because you have the same body weight uh, distributed. You know, it's not it's not entirely on the front leg. I mean, I think there was one study uh, that used the rear foot elevated split squat, and they tried to look at what's the distribution of the forces front leg. To rear leg so if you if you picture like you you have um you know you're in a lunge position so one leg's in front of the other but the rear leg is up on a bench or maybe if you're in your hotel room up on your your bed and what they they sought to investigate was what's the distribution of the load because we know that it's not entirely on the front leg but what's the relative percentage of front to rear leg and i found it was about 18 sorry 85 percent on the front leg Fifteen percent on the rear leg, um, and that's got by a guy called Mark Helm. In the, I think he's in Leeds Beckett University or somewhere like that. Um, so that was interesting. So you, so you could do your your rear foot elevated split squats. You could also, depending on what sort of bed you have, you might be able to slip your heels in underneath, um, your bed frame and do Nordic hamstring curls. Oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah so all of a sudden now now you can get some more more challenging exercises now the the difficulty with the body weight stuff and this was stuff that you know i i had to prescribe for people during during the first lockdown particularly because gyms were closed you know like that um so we had to was to it was very expensive as well yeah like equipment yeah. was was like
0: three four times the price even secondhand stuff even it was crazy like it was ridiculous yeah
1: Yeah, so try and find these workarounds. So you had to get kind of inventive with things. Um, So to cut a long story short, uh, very very effective exercises for the upper body that you can do uh, with just body weight. More difficult for the lower body, um, but it can be done. The problem with the body weight exercises is that it's not about getting a hard workout or a series of hard workouts. It's about providing overload over time that's kind of the difficulty there because unless if you know you have some way of adding weight onto yourself you know like a weight vest or putting a plate on your back or that kind of thing it's just more difficult to overload over time but you know for short term like the example you gave where you're in a hotel for a night um very easy to get a, a very challenging workout from just bodyweight exercises
0: yeah there's a guy called steve bingley he was at the australian institute of sport when we were there um he's in canberra he's probably about the same age as me ex-military guy australian military and he's got um like a boot camp type business in canberra that's got like i think hundreds of people that as well. lots of um outdoor stuff in the morning you know um might be called century strong or something like that anyway i want to have steve on the podcast because um steve um I think believe in his master's project that he was doing at the IS at the same time was looking at the efficacy of, and the benefits of the burpee. And, you know, basically he, he was kind of looking at, you know, because the burpee's done so much in the military and people hate the burpee, but it's kind of, you know, if you had one exercise to pick, only one body with, the burpee is probably the one that gives you the overall best value or bang for your buck. But, you know, I think, again, people don't like it because it absolutely fucks them up. It's really difficult to do. But if you can do a burpee, you know, it's a good sign, I think, or a good party measure or indicative of people's, you know, general strength, fitness, mobility, movement, a bit like, um, you know, Turkish get-ups are the same as well. You know, people often kind of say they're a good measurement of different things. So, mm. yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting. Um, you know, adding in these different these different things. So Arthur, whether people are doing bodyweight stuff, whether they're doing hit sessions, we're doing machines, no matter what age they are, you know, power lifters, you know, teenagers starting to play rugby or doing a contact sport or just for general, you know, interest, why what would you say to people are the benefits of lifting weights or doing any of these activities? We'll just say we'll just call them general strength and conditioning activities over their lifetime. What's the benefit of incorporating them in, whether it be once a week or five times a week? What's the long-term health benefits and why should people, you know, incorporate the morbidities in mind?
1: Yeah, yeah. So you can probably, cate- sorry, sorry, you can sort of subcategorize these into two themes, if you like. So performance and then overall health. Now, there's going to be a lot of overlap. So, for example, improving strength, depending on the individual, that could have a very profound effect on their overall health. But we'll just say, in general, performance and then overall health. So in terms of performance, you're talking about, like we've mentioned, increased strength, increased muscle hypertrophy, increased power production. Um, And there's been many studies that have documented uh, improved indicators of sports performance, just improved sprint speed, jump height, peak power during jumping, uh, change of direction ability. And then another thing that's huge for uh, the point of view of strength and conditioning is the potential for uh, weight training or resistance exercise done in the right way to reduce someone's um, risk of injury. Now, it's not going to reduce the chances of if someone gets a, a wallop in an MMA bout or you know, gets, a, gets gets hit in a rugby match, it's not going to reduce the likelihood of them getting hurt there. But what it does protect against is like uh, non-contact-based, um, or sorry, non, non-contact injuries, um, overuse injuries, that kind of thing. So done in the right way, um, it can reduce the, the likelihood of you picking up one of those injuries. Then in terms of overall health, I suppose the first one would be improved um, bone health through increased bone mineral density, increased bone strength, improve improved overall uh, metabolic health by virtue of improving your body composition, improving your your blood lipid profile. So lowers your your LDL cholesterol, you know your bad cholesterol if you like, and increases your HDL cholesterol or or your good cholesterol to completely oversimplified but uh, uh, then you have improved insulin sensitivity and things like improved uh, or reduced blood pressure in those who are hypertensive or, or pre-hypertensive um, and that kind of co- covers most of them really you know
0: so taking in like the caveats about age previous injuries not overloading too much not going crazy there really is no downside to incorporating strength and conditioning
1: into your life once or twice a week yeah, like like anything, the difference between a medicine and a and a poison is the dose, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it, like in the example we gave earlier on, someone who goes in hell for leather um, has com- completely unrealistic and lofty aspirations. Um, they may actually do themselves more harm than good. But starting off with a, a minimally effective dose and then progressing that over time is a is a, a very effective strategy. <clears throat>
0: But speak, speaking of uh, medicine and lethal doses, Arthur, you remind me of a, of a guy in a bar in Ireland about 21 years ago who came into the bar after having a heart attack. He was released from hospital and he was sitting there drinking a few pints and, you know, telling war stories. He wasn't even that old, probably, probably in his mid-40s. And he said, the doctor said I can only have seven pints a day from now on. And I went, what? Seven pints? I was working behind the bar. Se- seven point, point, pints a day. The doctor said seven pints. Yep, yeah, seven pints a day. I said, I think maybe he said seven pints a week, like one a day. Like you need to cut down. No, seven pints a day. So the doctor prescribed to you to have basically fifty pints in a week. I said that's like half a barrel of Guinness a week. Yep, that's what he said. I said I'd like to go and see your doctor. <laughs> so I think I think you know I think he heard what he wanted to hear and he was doing what he wanted to do. So. You know, one pint a day is not too bad, but yeah, he was a uh, one pint a day might be good for your iron levels or have a bit of social interaction. But seven pints a day, you know, it's a, it's a fair bit of liquid to be consuming, mind alcohol. You know, <laughs> what
1: did you, did you find out whatever became of him? Like, no, 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 I am um,
0: no, I didn't, no. But as you know yourself, like in Ireland, there's plenty of barflies around mm-hmm. that just talk shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know what I love about, like, I love about now. You know, well, maybe I wouldn't. Um, maybe it wouldn't be so good. But you know, back then people didn't have the internet on their phones. You know, mobile phones were just coming out in the late nineties, so you couldn't really fact check people straight away. Now you can fact check people, but I think that takes away half the fun of listening to their... The lies and the stories, you know, and I like. I've been a long time going out of Ireland, so I wonder do people go? Ah, put away your stupid phone. What would that know? I'm telling you now. The doctor said seven pints a day. So <laughs> I'm not sure what would uh, what would be said.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I know. I know a few of those type of characters. though have uh, have since departed the world, you know, because we're drinking, you know, way too much. But anyway, <laughs> Arthur, to wrap up, um, to give you some credibility for all you've been saying here. Can you? Um, you said at the start you you know you did your PhD and it kind of took a few twists and turns. ended up becoming mm. more biomechanics. What did you What did you set out to do, or what was your initial kind of uh, query or hypothesis that you had in the PhD
1: thesis? How long have you got?
0: We <laughs> have <laughs> about seven minutes.
1: <laughs> okay. Right. Well. So I I think to to be fair, when when I. So, so I decided I wanted to do a PhD when I was about halfway through my, my degree. And then I met a, pros, a, a potential supervisor and explained to him, look, I'd like to do a PhD. Have you any projects that you're looking at doing down the line? And he had one. And it was meant to be in um, basically looking at potentially um, improving health outcomes in sort of I suppose office workers by breaking up their sitting time by introducing these like five minute exercise snacks, if you like, you know, where they would leave their desk, maybe walk around the building, go back in and um,
0: have seven pints.
1: (laughs) No, no, go back to work, Um, and and because you know there's there's a lot of research suggesting that prolonged sitting is quite deleterious to your health and what we were sort of looking at is sort of again that this idea of the minimum effective dose of breaking up that sitting time um, for improving some markers of overall health um, and that was kind of a, an interesting and an exciting project long story short when we applied for the funding for the phd we didn't get it so we sort of went our separate ways a year later i came back so at this point I'm i'm out of my degree about a year and I met with a different supervisor, and uh, he, he. This lad has a bit of a reputation. Let's just put it that way, um, and and he he, he made shit of me in the in the the interview process or whatever. But the, the co-supervisor, the potential co-supervisor who was there that day, met with me afterwards and said, "Look, don't take it personally. That's just the way he is. We actually think you're a fantastic candidate." Um, we'd like to pursue this with you so i ended up pursuing it with them and that the project was meant to be looking at fish oil supplementation and adaptations to resistance exercise and we were kind of hanging our hats on one study from about 2011 i think it was where they fed elderly subjects with um so they supplemented them with uh fish oils um and then gave them an acute dose of protein. And what they found was that in when you uh, had pre-supplemented them with the, with the fish oils, they actually had an improved anabolic response to the protein feeding. We, it was hypothesized that some of that was around in reducing chronic inflammation and uh, reducing the anabolic resistance that tends to accompany getting older. But the difficulty we had was, like, we're, we're, we're looking at a younger population and more of a performance-based um, cohort, if you like. So a lot of that kind of stuff doesn't really apply to them. So about a year in, we there was one study that looked at what we were planning to investigate acutely and found nothing. Um, so we were like, okay, guys, we, we really don't have a lot to be – we don't have enough – to be kind of pursuing this Uh, I think this is dead in the water so at that point my supervisor said to me right well if not fish oils then what else and this was in a PhD meeting so I was there trying to think what could we use and I remember prior to that reading a study on HMB um, beta hydroxy beta methyl uh, butyrate um, which is a metabolite of leucine which is one of the essential amino acids. And it's considered the the trigger for muscle protein synthesis. So I kind of said that without really thinking too much. And he sort of said, no, now you might be onto something. But I was never really fully convinced of it. And HMB has a bit of a tainted reputation because of a couple of studies in 2013 and 2014 that were published and found some very... Eyebrow raising results like steroid like effects. And really? Yeah, and there was a couple of letters, letters to the editor, um oh there was one published with with basically all the heavy hitters in the in the field basically saying that's I I'm really not sure about this. It this flies in the face of everything that has been published before and since. Uh, we just don't think that these kind of results are possible with HMB. And everything that has been published since then is suggesting, yeah, you, they're probably right. So HMB has this kind of tainted reputation. So I didn't really feel comfortable even pursuing it. But I, I had sort of accepted, right, this is probably what I'm going to be looking at. Um, yeah, Long story short, between difficulties with the relationship with my supervisor and then just me not overly believing in the project um the whole thing sort of broke down and eventually I I split from what was my main supervisor and uh at that point my my then co-supervisor became my main supervisor now whilst all this was going on I had decided because I was like okay I I, I gotta do something I'm going crazy here I've got to start collecting some data um another phd student at the time who who was doing his own research on recovery of muscle function following resistance exercise was planning to use an isometric squat test as his measure of muscle function but at the time he had no reliability data on the the measure so he didn't know how reliable reliable it was day to day and of course if your measure isn't reliable it's more difficult to detect real change by virtue of your intervention. So I said to him, right, I'll do that reliability study for you, no problem. And that reliability study ended up being my first PhD study. Um, And then once the relationship with my former main supervisor broke down, I kind of said, right, do I want to do the H&B stuff or I could specialize in this isometric squat stuff? And eventually that's what I did. So I did a a few more studies. I did another reliability study. Um, in a different population. So the first one was looking at the reliability of the measure across different angles. And the second one was looking at the reliability what again across what we term the strength spectrum. And some might interpret that as like an absolute speed to absolute strength spectrum, which isn't what it was. What we, what we meant by that was from untrained individuals who have never lifted weights before to moderately trained individuals who, you know, lift weights a few times a week. They're familiar with squatting, exercise, that kind of thing, all the way up to very highly trained subjects, you know, competitive powerlifters with a minimum back squat 1RM of twice their body weight. Um, And what we found was that across that spectrum, the reliability was no different. So that was interesting because, for example, if you were to use 1RM, That would be completely inappropriate to use with the untrained individuals, you know. So, I mean, imagine, you know, you've never lifted weights before and I bring you into a lab and say, I want to test your 1RM back squat. That wouldn't be appropriate to do. But we could do that with the isometric, you know. So it's it's the same, similar biomechanics, but it's a static movement. So it's much safer.
0: So yeah. there's no actual like yeah, I've I've seen it, I've seen it before, but um and I've seen tests on it and been involved in it, but for people who may not be aware, it actually has no like weight on it.
1: No, exactly. So imagine imagine a squat rack that's mounted around two force plates and it's bolted to the floor, and then there's a a, a bar that is positioned within the rack and fixed in the position. Now you can adjust the height, but yeah. once you place it into the into the the holes in the rack it's fixed in that position you get in underneath the bar and you assume a a squatting posture if you like and then the you know newton's third law you know uh, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction so by you pushing into the bar uh the force that you're producing is is red so well it's basically by by you pushing into the force plates underneath you but that comes from contracting and trying to push the bar up um if that makes sense known so as pulling and dragging. <laughs> basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, we're, so we're measuring the, the, the peak force output from there. So anyway, that was the second reliability study done. Um, I'm not sure how much time I have left, but anyway, I'll, I'll keep going. 30 seconds.
0: I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Keep going. Yeah. So
1: the, the third study then, what we want to know is uh, related to what I was mentioning earlier on about uh, reliability is, so the next thing is like, how sensitive is the measure or how responsive is it to to a training stimulus? So we took moderately trained individuals, um, tested their one rep max squat and their peak isometric force on the isometric squat, gave them a six-week training program, and then retested those two outcome measures. What we found was that the measure was sensitive, but there was far more variability compared to the 1RM. And I would chalk that up to specificity because... Uh, they would have been performing back squats as part of the training routine. So they'd have been more familiar with that movement compared to the isometric squat yeah, where they yeah. would have only done pre and post training. Um, and then my final study, which was uh, the, the the data from it was a lot more murky, but it, the, the the concept I found interesting was, so in the first two studies, I noted that, so I, I mentioned that there were two force plates underneath the individuals when they're squatting. So that's interesting because you can look at what's termed um, interlimb asymmetries. So we can look at, is there any noticeable difference in the peak force on the left side versus the right side, or the stronger versus the left side? And what I noted, or what I observed in the in the first couple of studies, that there are actually quite a few individuals with a marked asymmetry between limbs. So sometimes greater than 10%. So I said, right, that's interesting. Um... And then I uh, dug into a bit of the literature and said, right, well, is there any evidence to suggest that if we have someone... Now, this is not people who are uninjured, and if you have an injury, that c- complicates things further because you may have an inherent asymmetry, uh, asymmetry due to the injury. But in non-injured individuals who present with this marked asymmetry, um, basically, can we train it out of them? So if we train them in a particular way, uh, can we reduce some of this interlim asymmetry? And there was one study that found pretty good results um, or pretty promising results um, using back squats, whereby in individuals who are kind of weak, if we get them stronger, they actually become more symmetrical as a result. Um, so I was like, all right, well, that study is out there. Is there anything on unilateral? exercises so like our rear foot elevated split squat or single leg rdl and part of the reason i was interested in that is because it's this thing that gets thrown around anecdotally it's like oh i'm doing these unilateral exercises to work on all my imbalances and if you've ever tried those exercises for the first time you might find that you're very stable and coordinated on one side and then on the other side you're falling all over the place like you had seven pints Exactly. <laughs> um, so I said, right, well, what would happen if we use those exercises um, from the point of view of performance? Because ultimately, if this asymmetry thing, so, for example, if we improve asymmetry, but there's no change in performance, it's not really, to me, it, it's not worth worrying about, you know? Yeah. So if, if we find that we can improve performance and reduce this asymmetry, well, then we're on to a winner. So that, that's basically what I did for my last study was I gave uh, two groups. So one that's training with bilateral um, exercises, so your squats, your deadlifts, and the other group, your unilateral exercises, your rear foot elevated split squat and your single leg RDL um, for six weeks. And we kept the outcome measures the same as the last study. So we, we still had the 1RM back squat. We still had the isometric squat. Um, And then we tested those pre and post, uh, both of those two interventions, Um, six weeks of training in in both of them. Um, What we found was that, um, interestingly, the the performance was improved in the 1RM in both groups. The bilateral training improved isometric squat strength. um, And in the unilateral group, there was a there was a trend towards improving isometric squat strength but and the reason i say that is because um covid-19 sort of messed messed us up a little bit because we lost about seven subjects uh, at that point so that's why i say there's a trend towards it because that's so what was, what was your p value there then arthur it was 0.06 0. 0. 0. 0. 0. 0. Uh yeah, but point zero eight actually.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were very I thought it had to be six to say a trend, but anyway, know.
1: <laughs> I, I reckon if we got the other seven subjects to the to the end of to the completion of the training, because a couple of them were doing really well in their training, oh, um, yeah. I reckon we would have got a significant effect. Um, but anyway, we still saw it in the one in. Um Then with the asymmetry stuff, it was it was a bit murky, a little bit a little bit more messy because. That stuff is just, there's just some variability that's very difficult to explain there. So let me let me illustrate what I, what I mean for you. So what we noticed was that if you just looked at the whole group, there was basically no change in asymmetry because some guys were getting worse, some guys were getting better, and all in all, it was sort of balancing each other out, and the, the mean effect was, um, was, was in around zero. However, if you just look at the subjects who I termed had what what we termed a meaningful asymmetry, so 10% or greater difference between limbs, you saw a much more reliable trend towards a reduction in asymmetry. So on those who had a marked asymmetry at baseline, they were more likely to improve it and get under this sort of 10% threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I used ten percent was because the CV of the 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 test itself was about eight percent, um, and there's some literature as well that's been trying to establish sort of thresholds of like right, what's any asymmetry that's worth worrying about? Ten to fifteen is kind of what a lot of them come up with. Now there's there's issues with that, and there's uh, some pretty good critiques you could give of a lot of that. But but broadly speaking, somewhere around that is what you might consider. Um, uh a genuine asymmetry uh so then yeah the, the the reduction in asymmetry was a bit more reliable as well in the bilateral training group compared to the unilateral training group but again if we'd got all the subjects in the unilateral training group because they they did their um they were finishing after the bilateral group um if we'd got all of those subjects to completion the results might have been slightly different
0: yeah, I think it's an interesting point there. You ring up about COVID. I have uh, a couple of PhD students I'm working with. Um, Like one obviously couldn't collect data during that period. One other, one other lady had to stop data collection. And she's now finding it really difficult to get it going again because it's very clinical looking at IBS and sleep and mood and mental health. And then another lady was poxed. <laughs> so lucky. She got all her data about four days before the lockdown here in Western Australia, which was just absolute pure gold. She got all her data, all devices back, looking at shift workers in, in remote mining populations and, and, you know, a big, big study and she got it back. So I think, uh, yeah, I feel for people like yourself Arthur or other people who are just starting a PhD now, you know, trying to collect data during this period because, you know, some people have, you know, taken three, four years off even work to do this or, you know, put their careers on hold or they're doing a part-time and then this happens and gets drawn out and it's it's an absolute, you know, a pain in the ass. Obviously it's first world problems, but you know, it's yeah. um it can be quite difficult and frustrating for a lot of people. So the other good thing I like about your story there, Arthur, independent of the of the findings, is that that is a that is a wild and wonderful PhD journey. I think a lot of people think that, you know, you do a PhD and you go to a lab every day and you wear a coat and you do some little things and you do a little project and then you become a PhD. What you've described there is the difficulty that is um, you know, amongst many people in trying to get what I would call applied PhDs. So when you're trying to collect data in people, it's extremely difficult not working in a lab, not to disparage that type of work, but you've just really highlighted and, and shown there in your journey how difficult it can be to get a PhD and how difficult it can be to collect data in people and then, you know, have a hypothesis, not getting kind of good preliminary findings, have to change tact. And then at the very end of it, you get slapped with COVID as well. So yeah, you, you earned that doctor title, so um you should definitely get Danny Lennon to call you doctor from now on. Seeing as he was so smart on Instagram, you know, with uh, some of his uh, some of his comments, so you you should you definitely deserve more than I do to get called doctor now after that journey. That was crazy, man. So, <laughs> hats off to you! For, hats off to you for overcoming all of those, you know, obstacles of people, project management, you know, conflicting personalities, uh, you know, changing tact, you know, finding a way through it. Uh, which I think is all the good things that you learn a PhD in in conjunction with becoming an expert in your area. But these are all the additional benefits you get from from doing a phd so
1: so congratulations arthur that was a that was a good journey for you uh, well thank you thank you very much and and, and I'll, I'll say a few words in defense of danny i mean anyone who knows me knows that i don't really take myself too seriously so when i saw that post i i was and laugh, laughing i have to say
0: oh look i i was laughing at it too because i i i obviously don't know danny as well as you but danny was here in australia a couple of years ago i think it was maybe two years ago yeah. year and a half ago and um Myself and Danny were out for lunch, and we went. To, I brought him to like a sushi trail place. and I was like, Oh, sorry, Danny, I know you're paleo, like, but and he just looked at me, you know. So he has got a good sense of humor. But, um, I'll tell you what is what is really disturbing about Danny is those pictures that he posts in a singlet. He needs to stop doing that. I've told him that numerous times. He needs to wear a
1: shirt. <laughs> well, fun- <laughs> funnily enough, it's funny you should say that because the IPF, the um, the federation that we compete in, they passed a rule. At the last general assembly that they had, whereby so there was a so what it originally stemmed from was because male lifters were allowed to take off their t-shirts for deadness but female lifters weren't. Okay. So there was complaints from females as like, well, why can't we take off our t-shirts? And eventually, the IPF just sort of said it was kind of those like, right, well, you kids don't know how to play fair, so we're just going to take all the toys away from you. And uh made 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 a rule that uh, all male competitors must now wear t shirts as well. So
0: there you go. And if you're wondering why you can't why people want not take off their shirts, you clearly haven't deadlifted people. So go out there and deadlift and you'll learn why. Um Arthur, thanks very much for your time today. If people um wanna get a hold of you, want to follow your work, see any of your work coming out of your PhD, um how can people get in contact with you? How can they follow you?
1: Yeah, so probably the best place to follow me i actually host a, a podcast myself and uh, you've you've been one of my most treasured guests ian um mm-hmm. and the, the, the podcast is called the, the no lift podcast and i'm kind of going all in on that right now in terms of where i want people to to go to follow me so if you search no lift podcast on instagram all one word that's the best place to find me and that's where i'd prefer you'd follow me because i'm trying to yeah. push promotion towards there I have a personal page, but I just don't care about it anymore. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, that's great.
0: The the, the No Lift podcast.
1: Yeah, that would be the best place to find me. And if you just direct message me there, if you you want to find out more about myself, you can email me as well, but um, that'd probably be as as handy.
0: No Lift podcast, great. So what's the future for you, Arthur, now that the PhD has done? You're building this No Lift podcast. What do you see the next uh, couple of years being? Uh,
1: Well, finish up the Corrections for my my thesis will be the first thing, and uh, once that's done and signed off on, and I have my hands washed of the, the PhD completely, because that's maybe something that not everyone's aware of. Once you finish your your oral examination, your your viva, you still have corrections to make. Yeah, um, or at least most people do. Um, once that's done, then uh, who knows? It's it's a strange time because. Acad- academia isn't a lot of fun right now. There's a lot of mm. people having to work from home and doing lectures over Zoom and stuff like that, and it's it's not as fun as it can be. Um, but like, I, I I probably will go into academia, and, and you know, we'll 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 see. I'm 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 a bit hesitant because the honest answer is I'm not entirely sure, but uh, that's where I'm likely to end up. I'd say.
0: Yeah, I think I think uh, the other thing I'd say to you is look at different ways of doing it. You know, like for me, for example, I run a consultancy business and make my living out of doing that. Um, obviously, that's a bit more challenging, but it gives me the freedom then to work on academic projects whenever I want. So I'm, I don't I'm not a full time academic. I just have adjunct positions, which are honorary positions. So sick so to dabble in research, but I try to do the research so that's going to help me grow as a person, but also help my business as well. Kind of cross pollinate as well, so I think that may be the way of the future of some people. Um, I think getting full time academic roles are getting harder and harder, more difficult, and you know funding, you know funding is kind of probably reducing, and then. I don't know if this is the same case in Ireland or other countries, but funding seems to be reducing, but more PhDs are getting produced as well, you know, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, this kind of oversupply, which is great that we're educating in our nations and people are getting kind of better at doing it. Some people might say the standard is dropped to PhDs. I don't know. Well, um, anyway, there's, there's probably an oversupply, you know, compared to maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. But I think, um, yeah, there's, there's obviously different ways of doing it. And not every PhD has to be an academic. So, um, you know, just practical ways of applying a, a PhD learning as well. So yeah. I think it'll be uh it'll be interesting. But I can see I can see it in the archer anyway. No matter I think a bit like myself, I think no matter what you do, you'll have your finger stuck in some research project somewhere because I can see your eyes light up uh, when you talk about it. So um yeah I think it's I think you'll you'll always have some finger in something going on. Um, even if you are, you know, working for yourself or working for somebody else. I think you'll always be
1: involved. Well well that's the hope as well. And like to your point, I think as well with regards to funding, like a lot of people that I speak to in academia, like they're, they're getting funding, but it's for projects that maybe they're not entirely invested, in. Yeah, entirely yeah, invested yeah. in, but it's like, this is really what does it for me, but it's because that's where the funding is. They have to go for it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And as a side note, before I wrap up, you know, people, a lot of people kind of think that you get a PhD and you know, automatically you're offered a job at a university as a lecturer and a researcher or one or the other. And then, that you know, the government just gives you money and money and over and over again all year. And you're kind of funded by the taxpayers to just do whatever you want, which is, <laughs> but it's so far away from the truth. Like, it's unbelievable, you know, where it's like you got to apply for funding. If you don't get a certain amount of funding, you might actually lose your job. You're nearly like if you're working in a lab or lead in a lab, you are like a small business unit. You know, you got to kind of win work as a project. You got to bring that money in. You got to pay for the staff. You got to, it's, it's, it's quite difficult <laughs> being an academic, you know, it's money's not easy to get. And like you said, and you have to kind of take on um, some projects you may not be that interested in, but it gives you, you know, the funding to get something going. And they can spin off some other projects and maybe get some findings to then use those findings to apply for other funding in different areas. It's, it's a bit like what we, we, um, We had a panel discussion at uh, World Sleep last year in Vancouver, and we all got up speaking about sleep and athletic performance. And and somebody got up and was kind of like, you know, well, you need to look at, you know, leptin and ghrelin levels in athletes like we do in shift workers with sleep loss, and this may be causing obesity and blah, blah, blah. And the panel was kind of like, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, if we get funding. And the person asking the question in the audience goes, we'll just apply for the funding. And we went, there's actually no funding sources for sleep and performance in elite athletes. And the person asked the question went, what? Well how, well, how would you do this work? And we all just start giggling. And went, and one of the guys—I won't say who he was—went like he actually said this in the room, like this is fucked. He goes, <laughs> you know, "This is what we have to do. We just have to scrimp, scrimp from different budgets, different, re, different funding to do this." He goes, "Most of us here are putting in our own time and our own interest. You know, we might work with Olympic groups or committees, but they're not funding us to do this. It's—it's it's very little. If we get—if we even get our costs covered, we're happy." You know, and that's that's definitely true. You know, there's not this endless pot of of money to be used for research. So, um, yeah, it's quite quite interesting. Probably warrants a podcast on its own with a group of academics telling war stories about because I think a lot of people are naive to how how that part of the world works. You know.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's one of the things that
0: turned me off doing that. Like, I think academia should be this utopia where you should work and you should get money and do whatever you want, it would be great. But it's one of the things that turned me off. I, I was like, you know, at my age and where I'm sure. in my life, and I, I didn't want to go looking for money there. I'd rather get money from business and uh, chart my own destiny. So,
1: yeah, and another thing, like, I'm sorry to hold you, but just this the last point that I think is important is that, like, for me, observing, you know, like my supervisor and uh other academics in in the university where i work like doing all that stuff is a full-time job in and of itself yeah not only that but they have to conduct the research and also be full-time teachers mm. you know
0: yeah um, it's not easy yeah there's no yeah. sitting around on i'm not sitting around on the grass like smoking marijuana talking about you know a social up- upheaval that doesn't happen only in the movies <laughs> it,
1: it's like the, the worst part about it is it it doesn't leave much time for getting your seven points a day in
0: <laughs> well, you know, Arthur, we'll end on that now. Get your seven <laughs> pints in, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you all had a good Christmas. It's time to get out there, lift some weights, whether it's high-intensity training, whether it's body weight. Just get out there and do something every week. Maybe, maybe and, and maybe have your seven pints after that. How about that, Arthur?
1: That's, that sounds perfectly reasonable. There you go. Yeah.
0: yeah, and then you can tell people that two doctors told you in a podcast. <laughs> 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 arthur thanks very much for your time today i really appreciate you coming on um yeah really 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 had a good i really enjoyed that chat it was really interesting so thanks very
1: much i, I th- yeah thanks very much for having me on and i i thoroughly enjoyed it as well cheers man thanks
2: we could drive along an ocean reflecting the sun or make a bed of green atop a wide open scene under a canvas of blue i would draw ever nearer to you to feel the dew on your skin that is how it would begin for summer is for falling in. So we could disregard the thought of ever having to part For summer is for falling in love Like the last breath of a sunset Right before the day is dead But maybe the heat of today Could keep even winter away So I'll remember your life Cause nothing ever changes the fact That summer is for falling In love Summer is for falling In love